uh, back at it. We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast on this Friday, November 13th. In the thick of the Masters, it is Bedlam by weekend. So we have plenty of OSU stuff to talk about, despite the OSU not playing a game. But we're, Colby and I are we're locked into Masters.com. So let's bring in Colby Powell. Uh, Colby, we're going to try not to look at our stream too much while we do this podcast, but it's going to be tough. Yeah, I'm going to try to talk as little as possible about DJ just rinsing one at 15, maybe having a chance to make another bogey. Sung JM's getting way out there. Where is Ricky at? I haven't seen Ricky. Where is Ricky? I think he's three under. He's he's lurking. I like it. I like it. Three he's under playing way better. He's he's beating up on – Wolf is just tanking right now. But Is he really? He was four under uh, through 11 whenever they stopped playing yesterday. Where's he, he at today? He's even par for the tournament. For the tournament. That is a big yikes. Even's not going to make the cut, I don't think. Yeah, you can go for all of our listeners and, and everybody. You can go on masters.com and click on players. You can, I clicked on Wolf this morning to see what happened, and it, it just get, it shows you every single shot in like 10 second increments. It cuts out all the filler. So it's great. I, I watched his entire finishing of his first round on in like two minutes this morning. Yeah, he I just, need to do that, see where things he, went wrong. He's not driving the ball well, and he, he left a couple of chips a little short that, that, uh, he, he couldn't quite convert, and uh, he was frankly lucky to to get where he was at his finishing round because he made a long par putt on uh, one of the par threes. I believe it was six. So he's he's struggling today driving the ball. Yeah, we talked about it on Monday. Experience at Augusta National. There is no substitute for the experience. Yep, we saw that with Tiger, who we will get to in just a minute. But first, let's hear from Chris's University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop on Campus Corner. Be sure to shop at Chris University Spirit dot com get all your shopping needs get christmas shopping done early folks i wait till the last minute my fiance has already got packages arriving she's way better at this than i am she's ahead of the game so i might be going on chris's to get my dad and, and mom some some gear here for christmas pretty soon yeah i'm a habitual christmas procrastinator luckily i got married my wife is better at it than i am but there is no one better in the world than my mother-in-law at buying christmas gifts early she starts buying christmas gifts in like may and spaces it out. She just buys a few every month. That way it's not lump, one big lump sum at the end of the year. She just buys a few every month starting in like May. And uh, then she's got them all ready by December. Which That's the way to do it. Strategy, but I'll probably just get on Christmas a week before and try to order something. Yep, that's a good plan for me too. I'm, I'm, I'm a procrastinator for sure. Okay, so let's get to the first five. Number one, obviously Bedlam is looming. It's another huge, huge matchup. And you Anytime you talk about Bedlam, you have to talk about Mike Gundy's record against Oklahoma. And look, some of this, you're playing Oklahoma. We get that. It's a tough challenge. But his record against a behemoth like OU is far worse than Augusta Malzahn, who's three and four against Alabama, and uh, other other programs of that ilk that that have done better, frankly, against their rivals. And and Colby, he's two and thirteen against OU and man just a few of the games that he's lost when he was the favorite I think is what really sticks in people's crawl it's not the fact he's only won two it's the fact that he had better teams in some of these years and still didn't find a way to get it done yeah I think you know I was trying to look at uh, comps for Mike Gundy because whenever you're trying to compare this you have to find a coach who is obviously a really good coach but just can't beat his rival and I think that the only current good comp for that is Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, who's 0-5 against Ohio State. And, I mean, there's every chance 
that it might cost him his job this year or the next uh, if he can't find out a way to beat the Buckeyes. And it's a similar situation. Michigan is just not quite as good a program as Ohio State. Michigan's a good program, but they're not near as good of a program as Ohio State. It's the same thing with Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State has a good program, but I don't think any of us are delusional enough to think that Oklahoma State is the caliber of program that Oklahoma is. It's the reason Oklahoma has accomplished what they have over the past, gosh, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Uh, I mean, they've been doing it for a long time. So I think that's your only real comp for Gundy right now is Harbaugh. And I mean, neither one of those guys have enviable records against their rival and right, wrong, or indifferent, how you perform against your rival really matters in college football. It does. And it wasn't that long ago, though, with the Jim Harbaugh comparison that John Cooper of Ohio State was fired despite winning nine, 10 games every year because he couldn't beat Michigan. So you can be great. And if you don't beat your rival, it's going to just upset the fan base. So that's part of what got less fired at LSU. Was it that or his his, uh, pedestrian offenses? Yeah, I mean, that's part of what got him fired. He his offenses were ancient and he couldn't beat Alabama. Those were the two things that got him fired. But I mean, they were still winning nine, 10 games at LSU. Nope, you're right. I think the less things wild. Um, I was trying to pull this up. Uh, where is his it? His last full season at LSU was 2015. They went nine and three that year. Wow. So it, it's not exclusive, though, to Mike Gundy, though. If you go back, Jimmy Johnson, 0-5 against Oklahoma. Pat Jones, 0-10-1. And he had some really good teams uh, that, that could contend with Oklahoma, even when OU was at their, their prime. Uh, look, Jim Lookabaugh, 2-8-1 against Oklahoma. Uh, Les Miles, though, he went 2-2 two two against Oklahoma when they were at their zenith under Bob Stoops. And I think that's why, you know, Les – we, we all know he left on poor terms. He, he lied to his team at, at halftime in the bowl game and then skipped town. But he did go two and two against against Bob Stoops. So that's uh, that not many people can say they had a, a 500 record against against Oklahoma, granted, in just four games. Yeah, no, that's really odd, actually, that he had a 500 record. I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just his intensity. Like he, he instilled the belief in his teams that they could and would beat Oklahoma and I think that Mike Gundy you know word has it that early in his time at Oklahoma State as head coach he tried to amp Bedlam up as more than just another game on the schedule and that didn't work out great because then you know the team would press and then you know now he treats it like it's just another game on the schedule and it doesn't seem like OSU shows up with the right amount of energy the appropriate amount of energy for the biggest game on their schedule each year so I, I don't I don't know where I stand as far as Gundy's intensity on Bedlam week. Uh, but I do know that two and 13 is, is tough. And again, it's not, it's not the year where Rudolph's out. Uh, you know, it's not with corn dog a couple of years ago. Th- those aren't the ones that uh, people get mad at. Cause those are the ones you're supposed to lose the Blake bell game in 13, the Mason Rudolph game in Stillwater in 2017, where you had every opportunity to win. Those are the ones that end up stinging for a long time. Yeah, and believe me, I, I've been very critical of Mike's approach in Bedlam. I think he just tries to just do what he does and play, you know, straight up football against Oklahoma in years past. And frankly, I think he's coached a little scared against Oklahoma. Every time he would see the OU logo across the field, he would he would coach differently. But I will say, the last three, four, or five years 
he's actually brought it. I think since 2017, that Mason Rudolph Baker Mayfield game, he went for it, man. He he was they were slinging it all over the field. That was a great football game. Rudolph throws an interception on, on the goal line. I think Mike Gundy went for it that year. 2018, he had an inferior team with with Corn Dog at quarterback. Corn Dog played a great game. Goes into you know they go for they go for two. They go for the win. And the play was there. Corn Dog just short armed it and didn't get it to Tylen Wallace. So while I do think he has been too conservative in this game, I will say he has opened it up because that 2016 game when he took a knee basically at midfield, when they didn't try to get a field goal or even throw a hail mary, that was like what he had. That, that was like the epitome of Mike Gundy in Bedlam for his entire career in Bedlam. Yeah, but I will was- say I got to give him credit, Colby, for for 2017 and 2018. And uh, he, he's gone for it. He's opened it up quite a bit. Yeah, 2017, I still think uh, – and, look, it was early. You had a lot of football left after that. But I still think there was a little bit of a screw job early in that game by the officials that took seven points off the board and really flipped the way that game started. But, again, there's a lot of football left after that. In 2018, I thought 2018 was maybe the best Bedlam coaching job we've seen from Mike Gundy to go out there with Corndog and that team against, let's not forget, Kyler Murray and Oklahoma, and basically, I mean, should have won the game. Uh, there's a reason Corndog is who he is. He, he had some really good moments at Oklahoma State, but we all know he's not Aaron Rodgers. And on the throw to win the game, he just missed it. But that game was very well coached. So I, I do think it's been better in recent years. I would agree with that. And I hope that we see more of the same this year because I just – if you're going to go out, go go out swinging. I mean, that's what bothered everybody about taking the knee at midfield that year. I mean, don't don't stand there with the bat on your shoulder and get caught looking. You know, put up a fight. And as long as Oklahoma State does that, I don't think people will be too upset on, on any given year. Well, and, and he's been punting and relying on his defense. And that works against a Kansas State. That works against a West Virginia, a Kansas that doesn't work against Oklahoma. If he expects to punt on fourth and one against OU and win the game, he, that's not happening. You're going to lose because their offense is going to score and you have to keep up. So I, I hope he does be aggressive in this game. I hope he does coach it aggressively. And frankly, I think Oklahoma is going to force him to be Colby because whew, OU's defensive line against Oklahoma States, I don't see any way they're going to be able to run the football with Chuba Hubbard and LD Brown in this game. Their, their O-line still beat up. I mean, don't you think that the mismatch on that front, they're going to have to open it up and throw it more? Yeah, I, I think with Ronnie Perkins, Perry and Winfrey, Nick Benito, those guys are playing unbelievable football right now. Really the best D-line we've seen at OU in quite some time. And it's kind decade. of decade. Probably best D-line in a decade. Probably, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and, and it's kind of like I was saying on Monday – I don't think you can just line up and go hat on hat and try to knock OU off the line. I think you have to get OU guessing and get their eyes moving different directions. I think that you've got to get them going in the wrong direction as opposed to just trying to push them back off the line because let's be honest with ourselves. Oklahoma State, uh, not known for its offensive line play anyway, and Oklahoma State's down about, I don't know, seven, eight offensive linemen from where they thought they were going to be prior to the start of the season. So yeah, I think that you need to do some stuff to get them off balance as opposed to just trying to run over them. Yeah, it's like I said, I I think you got to go somewhat air raid with this game, assuming Tywin's back. I think you got to go more spread to get more defensive backs on the field because that's OU's Open weakness. Balls. Throw it down the field. Throw it Backing deep. you up off the line of scrimmage. If you don't do that, you certainly won't be able to run the ball. 
And that's, I think Spencer throws a good deep ball. I think sometimes he struggles with the intermediate stuff and, and that's how he's thrown most of his interceptions really is the, the short intermediate stuff that that pass he had against Texas where he threw it to two t- Texas players and no, oh, no OSU players. So hopefully Mike Gundy's aggressive, but his, his record is, is two and 13 against Oklahoma. And this is a game that is once again for, for a big 12 championship. Uh, real quick, do you know who the best Bedlam coach in OSU history is? The best? Um, Has the I'm best record. Last miles, it would be a trick question. I don't know. Give it to me. He never lost to Oklahoma. Oh, this must have been. Was this Oklahoma State or Oklahoma A&M? A&M, baby. <laughs> Pappy Waldorf. <laughs> in his five seasons at Oklahoma and A&M from 1929 to 1933, A&M went 34-10-7, a winning percentage of 735. Mike Gundy has a winning percentage of 675. Gundy needs 35 straight wins to surpass Waldorf's percentage. He went 7-0-3 against in-state rivals Oklahoma and Tulsa, who was actually really good back then. Tulsa, they OSU hadn't beaten them since 1918 until Pappy Waldorf arrived. So he was unbeaten against Oklahoma. He tied them a couple times, never lost to them. And in true squinky OSU form, OSU wouldn't give him like a like a, a 40, 40% raise. He asked for like more money. And Kansas State came in and offered him way more money and he left. And he wow. was he was literally building a legit football program. That's a great what if in OSU history. If Pappy Waldorf had stayed at OSU, because if they had kept beating Oklahoma, I think obviously the interest in football would, was only increasing at that, that period of time. So shout out to Pappy Waldorf. If you took Bob Darcy's statistics class at Oklahoma State, he uh, he was a big fan of Pappy Waldorf. That's the first time I, I learned about Pappy. So yeah, that uh, was a great Pappy Waldorf story right until the end where they wouldn't pay him and he went to Kansas State. That was a depressing end to a great Pappy Waldorf story. I do think, let's see here. Uh, he did get, <laughs> Waldorf promoted a $40,000 10-year loan to add 2,200 seats, a public address system, an electric scoreboard, and an improved press box before he left. So he was he was kind of the original, like, fundraiser the mike holder of uh, oklahoma a&m he was he was getting things going and then kansas state had to had to swipe them yeah hearing them talk about an electronic scoreboard i just hearing all these stories about how things used to be i am so glad i was born in the era i was <laughs> well you didn't know any better back then that's true you didn't know any better but i mean now we're sitting here on zoom having a conversation like we're in person like it's nothing and Technology's it's, awesome. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't born until the 90s. And we're basically at Augusta while we're doing the the podcast too. That's that's, that's 20. Right. There's one good thing about 2020. It's that. So yeah. Uh, and again, I said number two on our first five is once again Bedlam is basically a Big 12 title game eliminator. You know, since 2010, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State have played five times where the winner could either solidify a spot in the Big 12 title game or win the conference outright. So once again, we have that scenario, and typically it's the last game of the year. Um, not the case this this season, obviously. But Mike Gundy does have a better record against Oklahoma coming off a bye. I believe he's two and three, if I remember correctly. So do you think the bye week can help him? I mean, obviously they they have some injury situations we can break down too. But the bye week has to help, you would think, considering his his poor record overall and an improved record on off a bye. Yeah, I mean he's two and third, or pardon me, he's two and three against OU off a of bye. He's zero and ten 
whenever there's not an open week. So, I mean, obviously, uh, 40% winning percentage off a bye week, 0% winning percentage whenever you don't have an open week. So that, I mean, I guess that bodes well. We talked about it on Monday. There's no better time for a bye week because just about everybody is hurt. And, and I'm hoping we got some Twitter questions we'll get to, people asking about injuries, and hopefully some of that stuff will sure itself up. But I do think that that is a little bit of an advantage whenever you look at the times Mike Gundy has won Bedlam. Now, obviously, that doesn't automatically mean OSU is going to go into Norman and win the game just because they're off of a bye week. But I, I certainly don't think that hurts at all. No, it has to help. Now, Oklahoma is coming off one, too. You'd like it better if Oklahoma wasn't. But I will say this is where, you know, I, I can be critical of, of Mike Gundy's recruiting. I can be critical of his, his history in Bedlam. But this is where I think people have to realize when they are critical of Mike Gundy, what he's done in his tenure. Oklahoma State is the second winningest program in the Big 12. We just said five times it's come down to them in Oklahoma for a Big 12 championship. He has supplanted Texas in the hierarchy of the Big 12. So I think with all of our criticisms and with all of our analysis of Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State, could it be better? Could he recruit better? Could he win more? It's amazing, Colby, where he's brought the OSU program. Because when I was in school, he was just getting started. They were just happy to go to a bowl game. And now look what he's done. He basically has supplanted Texas as the number two program in the Big 12 and really a top 15 program nationally. I mean, we have to give Mike credit for that. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, supplanting Texas in the uh, Big 12 hierarchy is obviously a huge accomplishment. And let's be honest, whenever Vince Young was doing the things he was doing, and then Colt McCoy comes along and Texas is going to the national championship game. Do we think we would sitting, be sitting here about a decade later saying that Oklahoma State is clearly, clearly heads and tails a superior program to the one they have in Austin? No, I don't think we'd be saying that, but it is. And it's obvious and it's really not that close whenever you look at the numbers. Uh, now, if you just look at the national narrative, you might think it's a little closer than it actually is. But if you look at the numbers, wins and losses, Oklahoma State has been dominant. Uh, in comparison to Texas and the Big 12 over the last decade. So that's that's impressive. Uh, and aside from Oklahoma, I mean, obviously the, the Oklahoma woes, and we talked about that plenty uh, on our first topic here, his record against OU and everything, but everything else that he's done at Oklahoma State, everything except the record against OU has been phenomenal. It really has. Yeah, I remember those Texas games that OSU basically played Oklahoma better than they did Texas. Like they had better – like I know OSU built big leads against Vince Young in 05 at, at home and certainly down in Austin against Vince when they were up 35 to seven and they ended up they ended up losing those games the, the worst one to me maybe 07 when they had Colt McCoy down and he goes on that really late run in Stillwater and there was a period of time where I was like I don't think I'm ever going to see OSU beat Texas in my life <laughs> it was that thoroughly depressing now they they seem to beat them every single time they're they're what like they won seven out of ten against against yeah. Texas now now Carson there's such a gap that for Texas to win the game in overtime they've got to get four turnovers from Oklahoma State and a roughing the punter in the fourth quarter Ooh, yeah that uh and, that when, and when would that ever happen you know what I mean that's not gonna <laughs> that's not realistic that's the 2020 scenario right God. uh well it is bye week does come at a great time for OSU the, the offensive line they're, they're missing six guys seven if you count Tevin Jenkins who who came out last week in, in the game and Chuba Hubbard, you would think would be fine. His ankle was bothering him. Uh, Tylen Wallace, he came in for the onside kick, which we didn't, we didn't really talk about last week, Colby. Like, have you ever seen a scenario where a guy's out for the game 
yet is in full pads and then comes out for the onside kick. If he's hurt, like, I guess it was a hamstring issue. Like, I guess he's not going to be running full speed on, on an onside hands team situation, but I've never seen that where a guy's out fully padded and then comes in for an onside kick. That was wild. Yeah, that, that was weird. But you know what's even weirder than that is that Oklahoma State has had two opponents in its last three games have to onside kick at the end of the game. Iowa State had to do it, and Kansas State had to do it. And if I'm a coach and I'm onside kicking against Oklahoma State, I've got two options. I can kick it to the side of the field where Tylen Wallace is at, who is as good, if not better, than any individual player in college football at tracking and going to get a football. Or I can kick it to the other side and there's just a guy over there. And both Iowa State and Kansas State kicked it directly to Tylen Wallace, both unsuccessfully. If you are a coach who elects to kick your onside kick to Tylen Wallace's side of the field, you are a moron. <laughs> I would agree with that. And they were both they were both pretty good kicks. I mean, the Kansas State one was really good. They just it went a little yeah. too far and it got behind him, which you would hope your guys running full speed could get to it. But but again, he tracked it. And he made, a, a, he made the smart right play before anybody else could get to it because of his ability to track down a football. But, hey, it works for Oklahoma State. If they want to keep onside kicking to Thailand, I guess we'll let them. Do you know what kick that people don't do enough that always seems to work? Right is up the, the middle? Right, is the, it's, just the, it's the kicker right up the middle because it's basically a one-on-one -on -one scenario because they usually just leave one guy there, maybe two, but they're never expecting it, and it always seems to work. As long as the ball goes 10 yards, the kicker almost always comes up with it. I don't know why teams don't do that more often. I agree. It's a great onside kick, and nobody ever does it because they want to let their speed guys get out and go after it. But if you can get the kicker to get one to bounce just right, right there in the middle, I, I think that that has a higher probability of success than trying to bounce one of these out near the sideline and hoping it doesn't go out of bounds and hoping it doesn't bounce right up to the guy. just seems like there's more things that can go wrong with that. Didn't someone try a drop kick against OSU? Was that Iowa State? Or am I misremembering oh, that? that was – that's a good question. Was that Texas? I think the, that was Texas. That might have been Texas. I think it was Bachevsky, the punter, who, by the way, has now torn his ACL. So Cameron Dicker will be handling the punting for the rest of the season for Texas. Oh, wow. An interesting nugget. Yeah, that was – it almost worked, too. I think they kicked it further down the field, obviously, with a drop kick, but it, it gave OSU trouble, so. Yeah, there ended up being a scrum for the ball because uh, Oklahoma State did not handle it cleanly. Oklahoma State came out of the pile with it, but Texas nearly got it. Well, let's hope Oklahoma State has to field an onside against OU to, and they kick it to Tylen Wallace for the, for the win. That would be great. <laughs> uh, you know, I mentioned OSU's injuries. I would expect those guys to be back. I don't, who knows on the offensive line? Colby, they're so beat up, and – Again, I don't, I don't expect their offensive line to, to play very well, frankly, with just how beat up they are. I don't think there's a program in the country, frankly, that could lose six offensive linemen via transfer or injury and still survive and still be able to run the football, even with a guy like Chuba Hubbard. I just – don't you think that if any program had to deal with that, they'd be struggling? Absolutely. I just – who has that much depth? I mean, sure, Clemson, Alabama, but even those schools, Ohio State, even those schools – I mean, there's a drop-off from that first line to the next, guys. You know, let's say you lose your left guard. You can manage. You can manage if you lose your left guard. Now, let's say you lose your left guard and your backup left guard and your right guard and your right tackle and your backups at both those positions and your left tackle. Who's not going to have a problem in that scenario? I just – it's been brutal for Oklahoma State. And it, it's one of those things where 
I don't even know, Carson, how I'm supposed to judge Casey Dunn. You know, Casey Dunn, at first year as an offensive coordinator at Oklahoma State, I really don't even know how to grade him as an offensive coordinator because the O-line is so depleted from where it should have been. And the game where Oklahoma State had its best offensive performance, Spencer Sanders throws for 400 yards after never reaching 300 in his career up to that point. But your guys get careless with the ball and there's four turnovers. Then you rough the punter and you lose the game. So I just – with, with all the injuries and, and all the fluke things that happened against Texas, I have no idea how to grade Casey Dunn right now as an OC. It reminds me a lot of 2013 when Mike Yurcich was in his first season as offensive coordinator. You know, they couldn't run the ball. Their offensive line was probably the worst they've ever had. And that wasn't that wasn't due to injury. They just had gone through offensive line coaches. Wickline left them pretty shorthanded, and they were just terrible on the offensive line. And Mike Yurcich was getting all the heat. And I think it's – it's very similar. I mean, that game against Kansas State, I mean, they had hardly any yards, hardly any first downs in the first half, and it was a struggle. And I just think that you can have all the skill talent in the world, but if you can't block, I mean, it's going to be tough on Spencer Sanders to do anything with throwing the ball, let alone the fact you can't you can't run the football. So now that's that to me is the number one concern in this game, and it's a really bad matchup for OSU. Now, there's great matchups for them as well, but Oklahoma also dealing with injuries, Colby. Uh, Spencer Rattler was hurt. He, he hurt his hip. He stayed in the game. I think it's more of a bruise that should be healed after the bye week. But the, the bigger concern for Oklahoma is Austin Stogner. They're big tight end. He's 6'6". He was hit really low in his, in his legs. I'm not sure if it's a knee or an ankle. But he, he was banged up and had to leave the game. And Lincoln Riley has been very tight-lipped ever since about those two guys he's basically said they're fine and has given very short answers which to me tells me they're not fine and that they are banged up and that he's concerned because Austin Stogner's a, a lot like Gronk in that he's he's 6'6 and the only way to bring him down is to hit him low he got hit low and, and, and injured so that that would be a huge loss for Oklahoma because Austin Stogner is one of their more reliable receivers at, at tight end. Yeah, Stogner obviously is a matchup nightmare for just about any defense. And uh, assuming that he does play and is healthy, we can preview next week who guards him, who covers him, and what that looks like from a defensive standpoint for Oklahoma State. But uh, Spencer Rattler, obviously, big deal with that hip. He said last week after the Kansas game, I got hit pretty good on my hip, just on my hip pointer, just under my rib cage, and it's just kind of like a bad bruise. So I couldn't really finish my throws. You could tell I didn't have any of my power the whole second half and after that on some of the completions as well. So I would not imagine after two weeks that is something that will still be bothering him a lot. But we know Oklahoma State can apply some pressure, and if they could hit Spencer Rattler a couple of times, you you just never know. Yep, and that's what they're going to do. I mean, they're going to come after him. And I think that's – you know, I've talked a lot about the, the mismatch between the defensive line of Oklahoma and OSU's offensive, uh, offensive line. But, man, Spencer Rattler looked – frankly, pretty bad. And, and Oklahoma looked pretty bad offensively against Kansas. Look, it's Kansas. They won. But, I mean, I think I think Kansas was only down like 16 late in that game. Like, they did not play well offensively. And Rattler made some just mind-numbing passes. He had a terrible interception. His pocket presence is still not very good. So, I think that's where, as much as you're concerned about OSU's offense, and, and I am, I think their defense can absolutely keep them in this game. And if they, they force a couple turnovers against Rattler – it's anyone's ball game at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, turnovers is the great equalizer. And, I mean, let's not act. Oh, was definitely an underdog going in, but let's not act like OU's favored by 21 or something. Uh, the early line that came out had OU as a six-and-a-half-point favorite. 
So six and a half in college football, yes, obviously there's, there's a clear favorite there. It's not a one-point line. But, I mean, six and a half point line in Bedlam, that, that's not much. So um, I, I, I think this could be a very competitive game. Obviously, if either Spencer starts to suffer the uh, turnover blues, that will put his team in a very difficult position. Yep, no doubt. And one injury I didn't mention, Colby Harvell-Peel. I think his status is absolutely critical. I think he's probably the second best player on this team behind Tylen Wallace. I mean, I, yeah, I would even, this year I would put him ahead of Chuba. I, I really would. I think he's played he's played better than Chuba this year. Yeah, so his status is absolutely see, critical. Yeah, I don't see any updates here about Colby Harvell Peel. I'd love to be able to give um, somebody an update. Also, it, it's saying it's an undisclosed injury. It was a it was a head injury, was it not? I don't I don't recall, man. I I can't remember at what point he went out in that game. What happened? Uh, I kind of thought it was a. I thought I heard it was more of like a hamstring or quad injury, like he pulled something. Uh, okay, I could I be wrong. But uh, there was confusion because he didn't have his helmet for a while. Then he was then he was just out. So I, yeah, that's what I was thinking because he didn't have his helmet. And usually, whenever they take a guy's helmet from him, it's a head injury. But then he came back without pads on, so I didn't know. Yeah, I, I still don't. We still got no clarification as to what Harvell Peel's injury is, which means that uh, unfortunately we cannot give you any update on what we think about Colby Harvell Peel and his chances to play. Well, next and- week. And good luck getting a, an update because no one had any idea that Tywin and Chuba were hurt coming into the Kansas State game. That was just a total – found that out about an hour before kickoff. So, I mean, I think we're hopeful for an update, but I think for competitive reasons, Mike Gunny's not going to give us one. So, hopefully Harvell peels back for that game. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big bedlam. So, we'll, we'll break that game down much more uh, next week. Obviously, it's a, it's a critical game. And uh, – Something happened that I've been waiting for for a while now. OSU offers Braylon Presley, the younger brother of Brendan Presley, who scored against Kansas State, the only offensive touchdown of the game. This kid, Colby, I don't know how much you've gotten to see him, but he's unbelievable. And he's only like 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, and he, I guess he doesn't have the top-end 40-yard dash time, which is the reason he hasn't been offered by a lot of bigger schools. But he finally got an OSU offer after just going nuclear on ESPN on a national televised game and he's so quick and shifty he plays running back he plays receiver they can put him anywhere on the field he reminds me so much of it of a Josh Stewart because you know Josh Stewart wasn't very big he wasn't the fastest he wasn't a burner like a like a Hollywood Brown type he was just a really good football player and this Braylon Presley kid the, the best comparison I can use is it's a lofty one, but in high school, certainly he looks like Reggie Bush because they kind of, they flex him out wide. They put him in the backfield. They just give him the football and he makes plays. So I think OSU can have their own versions of kind of the Lockett brothers at OSU. I was, I was happy to see that he got an offer. Yeah. I think everybody's been kind of wondering for a while what Oklahoma state was waiting on, especially whenever you consider what Oklahoma state has phasing out offensively after this season from a standpoint of playmakers on offense. I mean, I mean, playmakers, are going to be at a premium in Stillwater once Tylen and Chuba are gone. And I, I don't think it's a bad idea to have a guy who can do different things. E- even if you can't pinpoint and say 100%, okay, we're going to put him here. This is his exact speed. This is what can work for him. I think just having kind of a Swiss Army knife that can do a lot of different things is, is going to be a huge deal for Oklahoma State. So uh, hopefully he and Brennan can do special things at Oklahoma State and I think they're going to have every opportunity because once Tylen and Chuba are gone, especially Tylen at receiver, 
we're, we're really going to be looking for somebody, anybody to step up and fill those shoes. Absolutely. And to me, I'm not, I'm no more concerned about height in today's football. I mean, they list Tyree Kill at 5'10". I don't think he's 5'10". Jalen Waddell at Alabama, they list him at 5'10". I don't think he's 5'10". But what they are is they're, they're burners, but they're, they're, they're playmakers. And I think Deuce Vaughn's like, he's literally about five, five. Yeah. And he's one of the better running backs in the league already as a, as a freshman. And so hopefully OSU uses him. Hopefully they've watched what Tyreek's done in the NFL and use Braylon Presley like that, or even his brother too. I mean, I just think there's so many options with the jet sweeps and uh, you know, the short passing game that, that they could certainly use him. And, and again, I'm just happy to see him get an offer because he's a, he's a really good football player. And, you know, I think Oklahoma would even be interested in him if they didn't have, I mean, Oklahoma's recruiting like nothing but five-star receivers right now. I think they would be even, I even think they would be offering him if they didn't have such good commitments from some of the best guys in the entire country. Um, So before we get to Twitter questions, I want to throw one more thing at you that I didn't put on the rundown. You know, I mentioned last week that they have a full bye week OSU does. They clearly do not have any confidence to pick up a yard on fourth and short, let alone fourth and goal. I proposed the Jelani dozer that put Jelani Woods at Wildcat, former high school quarterback. I'm calling it the woodshed package. And it's gained a lot of traction on Twitter. I think people on Twitter are asking for it. And I tweeted a video of his high school footage where he can run the zone read and I don't even think there's just you can put in an entire package just with just with Jelani on the field at, at Wildcat. And that's something that OU hasn't seen, too. So not only is it a way to resolve your short yardage situations, it's something that I think Alex Grinch is going to call timeout the first time he sees it because he's not prepared for it. Don't you think they should go to the woodshed package? First off, woodshed is brilliant. That's a brilliant name. Take him to the woodshed. <laughs> Did you come up with that or did somebody on Twitter come up with that? I came up with that. I asked for, uh, for suggestions. Uh, one of my followers suggested the wood chipper as well. Yeah. I, I, like, I like any of those, but I, I just say fourth and one, take them to the woodshed. Yeah, I like woodshed a lot. That's my favorite for sure. Um, I, look, I don't want to live in a fantasy world where Mike Gundy gets too creative because then we're, we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment. <laughs> but I do think that it would be something OU hasn't seen and Oklahoma State's got to figure out a way to get a yard when it needs a yard because just punting it away every single time you've got fourth and one from midfield, you're going to get yourself beat against good teams, and that would be a way to do it. And like you said, it's something that they haven't seen, and if you get down to the two- or three-yard line, you can run the little jump pass out of it. The jump pass is one of my favorite and, and what I think is one of the most underutilized plays in all of football Anytime you see anybody do a jump pass, it works because the defense is completely not expecting it. They're caught moving forward and they can't move back quick enough. So I love it. Take them behind the woodshed. I'm in. Yeah. And I love the jump pass. It always seems to work. And you can, as I said, build an entire package around it with, you have a guy running a jet sweep. He can fake it. He can run a zone read. I mean, you don't even have to just line them up and run straight ahead. You can really get the defense totally confused with that. But the main reason I like it, Colby, is... Like, I, I have confidence in L.D. Brown on short yards. He runs hard. I just don't have any confidence this offensive line can get a push. So with this, you basically just tell them, hold your ground. Because you have a six-foot-seven giant 
coming behind you that can either jump over the pile or just push it himself and get a yard. Even in a, even in a quarterback sneak scenario, just under center, I think he can get a yard just by falling forward. He's six foot seven for crying out loud. So I, I think that helps the offensive line to where you just, you don't have to get a push, just hold your ground and let Jelani do the rest. Yeah, Jelani Woods is listed at 6'7", 276. I would imagine he would be difficult to tackle if you get him in the right situation. I'm getting my hopes up, aren't I? You're way getting your hopes up. There's no chance this is happening. If it happens, I'm going to be so happy. I'm if gonna, it happens, I'm, I'm going to be off my couch screaming at my TV. I don't even care if it works. If it happens, I'll be screaming at my TV <laughs> anyway. We'll, uh, we'll have to have Chris's uh, start printing some some woodshed t-shirts if that happens. I'm going to have to Absolutely. get with Chris and, and see if they can get that done because, oh, that'd be great too. And and just the added bonus of basically running the belldozer in Norman against OU would just be a, a total like clap back at, at the Sooners as well. Would be poetic justice to go into their home field and beat them with the thing that they came into your home field and beat you with in 2013. First night game ever in Norman for Bedlam. Can you believe that? Obviously, everyone remembers Tyree Kill returning the punt, but it, it was dark. But that game started at, at 2.30. They've had a lot of 2.30, 3 o'clock games that in the fall, it's dark by the end of the game. But this is the first night Bedlam game ever. 6.30 kick. Isn't that crazy? First night Bedlam game in Norman, you mean? Yeah, in Norman. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because wasn't the uh... – wasn't like the Sam Bradford game in Stillwater a night game? Yeah, and la- last year's, I believe, was as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I mean, that's pretty cool, I guess. It's uh, restricted fans. I'm trying to look up and see what the weather is going to be like. It's supposed to be wet. Time. Damon Lane, our, our KOCO5 weatherman, told me that uh, expect a wet bedlam. So, that, that, that already scares me because, remember, like 20, 2016, he was afraid to let Rudolph throw the football because it was wet when Baker Mayfield was slinging it all over the field. Uh, Mason had the, the small hands thing. I think we, that scared him a little wow. bit. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. According to my weather app here, the high in Norman next Saturday is 69 degrees. So, Oh, okay. Well, hopefully it's not too wet then. So it sounds like it should be nice. Yeah. So are right, you want to get to Twitter questions? Absolutely. You got to uh, go ahead and fire. I, I have one right here. I'll start. Uh, let's see here. Where do the cursive? This is from Hunter Weaver. He says, "Where do the cursive Cowboys helmets rank on the all-time OSU helmet list?" Oh, on the all-time. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it cracks the. I liked the cursive Cowboys, but I don't think it cracks the top three. There's just so many good helmets. I'd say probably four or five, just off the top of my head. I would think. Obviously, I got the brand. Any version of the brand one, old school brand included there. Um, I love Patriot Pete. I never thought I'd say that when they first debuted it. I was like, oh, they got bow-legged Pete on the helmet. That looks funny. But I've kind of grown to like the Patriot Pete helmet. Um, I would put it right there, though. I, I like the Curse of Cowboys way better than, than Big Gigantic Pete or Scary Pete. The, the yeah, Phantom I don't Pete. love Big Gigantic Pete, but I like both of the matte black helmets better, the one with the traditional OSU logo on the side and the one with the, uh, the badge. And then I also like the throwback old school Oklahoma State logo on the side that went with the 1988 Berries and the 87 Thurmans. Uh, so I would put those ahead of it. And then I'd probably have it falling in right behind those. So probably four or five. Yeah, I like it better than virtually all the Pete's. So that's how I would, I would rank it. Uh, I think you got some Twitter questions too. Uh, yeah, so Kendall Eshbeck tweets us and says, what percentage chance are you giving Oklahoma State to win Bedlam? Put a percent on it for us, Carson. Let's see here. 
with OSU's defense, I give them a real shot. I would say probably 45% um, because I just think they're going to have a tough time. I, I just don't see an avenue for their offense to, to keep up scoring wise. Now, I think people just assume that Oklahoma is going to score 35, but a very similar defense to Oklahoma State's Iowa State. And they held OU to 30. Now that was before they had Ramondre Stevenson. I will say that. So I do think this defense is capable of holding OU to 30 or even below. If they get some turnovers, I think they could hold them under 30 because I think Spencer Rattler has certainly played really well at times. He's been on on all the pro football focus uh, QB ratings, but he's shown a propensity to make some just really terrible football plays and really inexperienced football plays because he is still a, a redshirt freshman. So I would put it at 45, give or take, based on the turnover factor of the defense. I think they're going to get after him. I just I really am concerned about Spencer Sanders' turnover problems that are well documented with that defensive line. They're going to be pressuring him big time, probably sacking him a bunch, kind of like Joseph Osai did from Texas. So I, I say 45 conservatively. Yeah, if uh, I think if this Oklahoma State team with all the injuries, all the unknowns, and just some of the problems that they've had beating Oklahoma – I think if this exact OSU team plays this exact OU team four times, Oklahoma State wins one. They win the turnover battle once. They, they get some things going. But I think Oklahoma's definitely the better team. So by that logic, I have to be at a much lower 25%, uh, which is coming in much lower than you are. But I, I think they beat OU about one in four with the current setups of the rosters here. Uh, Carson, we had another – we had a great question from Caden McFarland. Shout out, Caden. Um, he asked, who is the better college football coach – and who has had the better career, Mike Gundy or Les Miles? Hmm. Who is the better football coach now or just over the course of their entire career, I would I'm say? A, I'm assuming he means – Obviously, I mean, course obviously of their career. Better coach now. So I'm, I'm assuming he means over the course of their careers. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, I would have loved to have seen Les be at OSU longer and with all the facilities that Mike Gundy had. You know, they were just starting to, to build when Les – left um i will say this less a better recruiter i mean you go back to some of the dudes that that less had and that mainly on the front the defensive front that he was getting the the talent but i will say i think mike saw some of the character problems less had in his program he had to kick off a bunch of those highly touted guys that were were not quote unquote cowboy culture type guys and i think that had a lot to do with some of some of mike's recruiting philosophy he didn't like dealing with some of that but man, you look at the talent he got at LSU and, and OSU. Les is a great recruiter. I don't think people view him that way, but he really was. He, he got a lot of talent at both schools. And Les won a national championship. I know it was at LSU. I would, I would love to see. This is why it's so hard because Mike Gundy at LSU, I think he could certainly have his pick of, of four and five stars a lot easier than at Oklahoma State. Now, what he now, would he kind of have a similar recruiting philosophy at LSU that he does at OSU? I don't know. But I think overall, man, it's a tough question. Who's the better coach? I think Les had a better career thus far because he won the national championship. And how many conference titles did Les win? Do you have that handy? Uh, he finished first in the SEC West in 2005, 2007, 2011, uh so yeah. three times he finished first in the west and two of those times he made it to the national championship game so i'm assuming uh that they won it both of those years but but here's the problem that i have and this is such a hard comparison to me obviously less probably gets the nod because he won 
a national championship. But in 2007, when they won that national championship, they got there via the computers in BCS system with two losses. And Oklahoma State in 2011 had a chance to play against an undefeated LSU team in the national championship game with one loss, and they didn't make it. And I I just – it's so tough for me because in 2011, we could have seen Mike Gundy versus Les Miles for a national championship, but Oklahoma State doesn't get that benefit of the doubt because of who they are with one loss. But in 2007, the one year that LSU does win a national championship under Les Miles, they get there with two losses, two conference losses that season, and they still get to the BCS national championship game and win it. So I think that Les Miles does get the nod because he won that national championship. But I also think he has the built-in advantage of being at a school that gets the benefit of the doubt and is even awarded the opportunity to play in that national championship game. How much differently is this are we viewing this question if Gundy gets there and beats less for a national championship? <laughs> oh, if Gundy gets there in 11 and beats less straight up for a national championship, Oklahoma State over Louisiana State, we are absolutely calling Mike Gundy the better coach. And I, I think they would have beat LSU in that game. I will take that to my grave. No one can convince me otherwise. Uh, so I got to go last because, I mean, he was in the SEC West going up against those behemoths too. I think he had a tougher tougher road at a better job, but it's close. And, again, I think I think when Gundy's all said and done, he's, he's one of the best coaches in the last 20 years. That's, that's how much I think of Mike Gundy. I think he's a great coach, but – I don't know. It's it's interesting. I mean, Gundy's record at OSU was certainly better. Now you got to factor in the facilities and all that. But um, but yeah, I give Les a slight nod just just for his overall success in the SEC and and what he did there. Now, Les was super frustrating. His offenses were tough to watch, and Mike Gundy hadn't had that problem at OSU. But uh, I guess I'll give a slight lean to Les. But I'm not I'm not totally sold on it either. Yeah, we got a couple more good Twitter questions here. Ryan Ferguson asks how banged up or, or how are the banged up players healing? We had another uh, couple of Twitter questions. I think um, Tyler Davis also asked about the injury status of these guys. Carson, I, unless you have information that I don't, this is not information that anyone is privy to as to how these injuries are coming along. So we're just kind of left hoping for the best. No, but I can um, I can pretty much say I, I think Shuba's going to play. I think Tylen's going to play. I think they'll be back to, to full speed. Harvell Peel is the one I don't know about, and it's the biggest concern for me moving in, moving forward. And other than the offensive line, which again I don't I don't know what the offensive line is going to look like uh, in that game. It's just there's too many unknowns with the injury situation at, at this point. Uh, I got one from uh, Matthew Weinreich Weinrich. Hope I'm saying that right. He says, "Assume the Pokes lose to OU twice. I guess he assumes they get to the Big 12 title game, and Sanders underwhelmed in both." If you could go back and try the whole season again with Illingworth, would you? I mean, if you're telling me Oklahoma State finishes at eight and three and I can run it back with Illingworth, sure. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'd run it back with Illingworth in that hypothetical because this is a team that I think we had all hoped would be a 10 and one team by the time all was said and done. So if if you're telling me eight and three and I get a chance to to do it over, I mean, what do I have to lose at that point? Because I mean, even if they lose games, it's the difference in the uh, Cotton Bowl and the Camping World Bowl, which doesn't make a big difference to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer is no. You, you, don't, you don't start Ellingworth over, over Sanders. Even knowing what you know now, I, I think – and look, I was the one 
just campaigning for them to play Spencer in 2018 because I think they were much different seasons, much different teams, trajectories. I mean, this this team has a legit chance still to win a Big 12 championship. And that, that's the difference back in 2018. That team went six and six. They had no chance to compete for a Big 12 championship. And you factor in, they looked dead in the water in three or four games in Big 12 play, and, and Corn Dog took every single snap when they weren't scoring a point against Tech and Kansas State and Baylor. I just, to me, it's two very different situations and very different states of the program. That's the biggest difference with this question. You don't play Ellingworth. Sanders is your quarterback for a reason. And look, I, I wish he had more experience. I wish he had played in 2018. He had some injuries that have led to his lack of experience as well. But no, you, you start Spencer Sanders throughout this this entire year. Yeah, just so I'm, I'm very clear on my opinion, I do not think that Sanders should be pulled for Illingworth. I'm just saying if you get to the end of the season, you've got three losses, but I'd like to have seen how it would have played out otherwise. Sure, and then we can uh, compare and contrast. Got a good question from John Jester. Uh, he asks, if blank, player or position group, has a good game in Bedlam, OSU should put themselves in a position to win. Same question for OU. So, uh, I mean – Essentially what he's asking, Carson, is who needs to play well or what position group needs to show up for Oklahoma State to win the game? Offensive line for me. I mean, look, they've they played well at times this year. I thought, um, you know, they played well against some of the lesser competition, but this is a much different animal. If they can give Sanders time and he's not under duress the entire game, I think OSU can win this football game. Now, obviously, I think the easy – answer would be Spencer Sanders don't turn it over if he plays well they have a chance but I don't think he'll have an opportunity to do so unless the offensive line plays well see I'm actually going to go on the other side of the ball I'm gonna go defensive line because I think now with Ramondre Stevenson back for Oklahoma that run game uh, looks a lot different than it did whenever they were losing earlier in the season to Kansas State and Iowa State Ramondre Stevenson is a beast listed at six foot 247 he's got speed he's got the vision he's just a really really solid back at Oklahoma. So I think it's on the defensive line to slow him down, keep OU out of second and third and short, which I think if you get them in those all day, you're going to have problems. Uh, I also think it's on them to pressure and hit Spencer Rattler and make him uncomfortable and force him into some turnovers. So I'm going to go on the other side and go defensive line. You got any more Twitter questions? I've got one or two more probably. Yeah, let's see here. I do have one more. It's more golf related. So if you, if you have another football one, I, I wanted to pose this to you though, too. You know, we talked about Ellingworth and Sanders. If Sanders does struggle the rest of this year, I think it's an open job next year. I think Illingworth is going to push him for that starting job next year. I think that's going to be a fun battle if if Sanders continues to struggle throughout the rest of this season. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, a couple more. So Patty asks, how concerned are you about Stevenson versus the gut of OSU's defense? Uh, and then he said, secondary question, is Ramondre Stevenson fat? I'll let you address those. Uh, he's pH fat. <laughs> I mean, he's, he probably runs a, a four, four at two forty seven. He is, he's thick. He's a, he's a grown man. I mean, he's, he's a senior and he sat out a year before going to Juco. So he's a grown man. I mean, he could be playing in the NFL right now, age wise. And I think he is the number one problem for Oklahoma state's defense. And again, I, I love their defense. I think they're gonna give them a chance to win this game, but my number one concern with them is when people run right at them. I thought Texas had some success up the middle against them with Bijan Robinson, who's nowhere near as good as Ramondre at this point. And I just have seen this too many times where Oklahoma State cannot stop the run against against Oklahoma or Oklahoma State can't stop the run against Oklahoma. And I go back to last year. I mean, 
it was Kennedy Brooks left, Kennedy Brooks right, Jalen Hurts left, Jalen Hurts right. They barely had to throw the football in that game. They just ran it right down their throat with with a defense that's virtually the same defense in terms of personnel this season as it was last year. So I now I will say this about Ramondre. He's looked great. I think he looks like an all Big 12 back at this point. But he's been beaten up on the sisters of the poor against Texas Tech, against Kansas. He he came back against Two, two of the worst teams in the league. I don't think he's going to have near the lanes he had against those teams as he will against OSU. So I do think OSU can slow him down. I just worry about third and three. Can they stop him? That's 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 my number one concern. But no, he's not fat. He's a grown-ass man. Yeah, I think thick is a great, great word for it. Thick with two Cs two is C's. what Ramondre Stevenson is. Uh, and yes, I am concerned about Ramondre Stevenson. I, I think that he is a beast. Uh, and I think Oklahoma State fans should be a little bit worried about what he can do. One more on my end, and then we'll transition to golf. Carson, Brian Metcalf asked, have you watched any of the basketball practices and what have you liked from it? Individual play, lineups, coaching in particular. I don't know about you. I watched that first one uh, that they streamed. I haven't been able to catch any since. I was in Mexico last week, and then I've been playing catch up. So I haven't caught a ton of it. I did see where Cade Cunningham was named preseason AP All-American. So another list of preseason accolades coming Cade's way. Um, and, and the first practice that I watched, you couldn't tell a ton, but I think this team has a lot of talent. I think I saw where they were picked seventh preseason. And boy, if they finish seventh in the Big 12, I think something went wrong whenever you have this much talent on campus. Yeah, I don't understand how they were picked seventh in the Big 12 and they're not ranked in the AP poll when they have literally the number one pick in the draft on their team. In what world, sense, in what mean, world does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, that makes zero sense to me. So I think they're vastly underrated. And I don't think people are factoring in the other guys they have on this team. That The freshman from Canada, Matthew Alexander Moncrief, is a big-time player. Rondell Walker from, from Putnam City West is a big-time player. The kid from Nebraska, Donovan Williams, is a big-time. Yeah. I mean, Mike, Mike Boynton is recruiting the lights out up there. And so my biggest takeaway from watching some of the practices is you know, college basketball continues to try to model the NBA in terms of the style of play is changing. It's going to far more small ball, far more perimeter shooting. And I think with Yorane transferring out to SMU, who I loved, I loved Yorane. I could not get enough Yorane. I'm so disappointed he left because he was so good. I think he's going to play in the NBA. But with him leaving, I think you're going to see a much different style of play. I think they're going to go super small with all these guards. I think even Isaac likely toyed with some some point forward at times, put him in the middle and has to play some point forward at times, surrounded by the Boone twins and everyone else. So I, I think it's going to be fun to watch in terms of the style of play. I think they're going to use their length, their athleticism, and get up and down a little bit and, and go super small. And I think that will be a, a huge challenge for teams they play because you put four or five small guys that can all score on the court, uh, that, that's going to be a problem because while they will have a bunch of guards and scorers, their length and athleticism will be able to make them hold up on the defensive end. So that's kind of what I'm my biggest takeaway is. Yeah, the term positionless basketball has gotten used a ton lately in the NBA, not so much in, in college. But positionless basketball, I think, is what we're going to see from Oklahoma State this year. I think you'll see the ball in Cade's hands a lot. I think he'll be your number one playmaker. But I do think that you'll have um, a lot of different guys handling it, a lot of different guys being asked to score. And I do think it'll present a problem for opposing defenses. So I'm, I'm geeked for college basketball season more so than I have been in uh, a long time at Oklahoma state. So that's all, that's all the Twitter questions on my end. 
Yeah, mine. Uh, my last one is is golf related, which will kind of lead us into our our masters talk. Who wins a major first? Let me see. Who this is from. I like to give I like, when people ask. I want to give them credit. Oh, it's Hunter Weaver. You got two questions on the show. Right. He says, uh, "Who wins a major first, Matthew Wolf or Ricky Fowler?" Oh man, good question. I don't think it's really that hard. Question. I don't think it's that hard. Uh Man, Wolf has been competitive in these last two, but he's so young. Ricky's got uh I'll go. It's Matthew Wolf. It's Matthew Wolf. He has Matthew Wolf is the first player since 1881 to finish top four in his first two major attempts. He was on the leaderboard through eleven holes of his first round. He's fallen back a bit to even par. But I just think with his length, it's gonna be a lot like Bryson. I mean, people don't talk about Wolf when they talk about the the distance debate with Bryson. He's right there with him in the length department. And I think that's gonna give him a shot at every major. Just look at the US Open. That's that's typically a major that the long hitters struggle because they hit in the rough. But with his steep angle on his swing, he was able to get it out of the rough very easily. He, he had the he had the lead going in the final round of the US Open. So I just think Wolf, you know, it was so strange how when he started his career on the PGA Tour, he he, he won early in the 3M Open, and then he struggled to make cuts, frankly, and was was kind of kind of lost. And you, you wondered if his swing was going to be consistent enough to hold up on the PGA Tour. Well, since then, he's just been on fire. I think switching to his caddy, Nick Heinen from Evan North, has helped him a ton because I think he hired, I think, Rory's old caddy uh, when he first started, and they just did terribly together, and he, he, he got rid of him. And he got Nick Heinen on the bag, who was his teammate at OSU. And if you've watched any of their interactions, they're super chill. And they kind of had that George Gankis talk going back and forth, like hit a good shot, G. And like, they're very relaxed. I think that's calmed him down to just go into like college mode out on, out on the PGA Tour. And it helps there's no crowds to kind of keep him, keep him in that frame of mind as well. And he's played loose and he's played awesome. And I just think you know, Ricky has a great record at Augusta. If he gets one, I think it will be at the Masters, and he's certainly contending already this year. But Ricky's game has just gone south. He, he switched putters. He's gone from the blade to the mallet. That's always a bad sign. And his tee to green game has just completely fallen apart. I just think they're in very different places. I think Ricky's all the way down to like 40-something in the world while Matthew's 14. That, that makes an easy call for me. That was a great case that you just laid forward. I – I am so uh, I so love experience whenever it comes to these majors and, and all the experience Ricky has. Man, he's got a lot of scar tissue too. And he's got a lot of times where he's come close and been unable to win. You remember back in 2014, I believe it was, he finished top five in all four majors. And at that point, we all sat there and said, okay, his time is coming. It's coming. It'll be here before we know it. And then in 2018, if Patrick Reed hiccups even a little bit, he would have won that Masters and Reed didn't. And of course he finished runner up. To Patrick Reed that year so I mean with everything that Ricky's been through over the last basically since that Masters the good golf that we have not seen him play in the last two years I I think I have to reluctantly agree that Matthew Wolf will get one first reluctantly yeah because I still love Ricky I know a lot of people have given up on him I I have not given up on him I still think it's possible he wins one everybody gave up on Sergio too and he got one so I, I still think it's possible but man I just I, I don't know. It's I, whenever Butch Harmon made the comment that you have to decide whether you want to be a Kardashian or a tour pro. I, <laughs> I don't know. Well, Ricky's 31 years old and uh, Phil Mickelson didn't win one until he was 34. God, he's only 31. Yep. 
And that that's Phil Mickelson. That's one of the best players of, of all time. So maybe you can get one here in the next three or four years. So with that, let's get to the Chris's University Spirit Masters uniform review. Since we don't have OSU uniforms to review, we're going to review a little Masters attire. This is brought to you by Chris's University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop on Campus Corner. And be sure to shop online at chrisuniversityspirit.com. I've got a uni Heisman from the first round, and I think this goes for every round. I think Justin Thomas is the best dressed player on tour. He rocks the uh, – he benefits from good sponsors. Well, he's got the, the Ralph Lauren sponsorship, the Foot Joy sponsorship. So he wears like the, the always classy kind of wingtip – foot joy shoes so i'll go with justin thomas as my uh uniform heisman would say you justin thomas is strong he is week in week out one of the best dressed players on tour i'm just i'm wondering why you hate paul casey so much and why you didn't give it to paul casey did you see his nike polo he's not one of the most disgusting things you've ever seen in your life it reminds me of the one that Fleetwood was wearing last year that was like the Hort, the warshack test which is the white and black spots all over it yeah I don't know what Nike's doing. Like Paul Casey, if you didn't see, it says like, it's this like block kind of, I don't even know how to describe it. Nike lettering that kind of goes over his back shoulder onto his side. It's terrible. He wore a white shirt yesterday. He's wearing pink today. It's even worse today. And Tony Finau had this zigzag hat with Nike with that weird brown green color they're having everyone wear. I don't know what Nike's doing. I've always been a Nike proponent, but their golf stuff continues to get worse and worse. I mean, uh, Brooks was wearing like that, that tie dye hat a few years ago. I don't, I don't know what Nike's doing. Yeah. They're trying to be different and, and different is fine. As long as different is good. Different is bad right now at the masters. It's really bad for these guys, Paul Casey and Tony Finau, especially that you mentioned at, at the risk of being just a huge homer and a huge fanboy. Nobody, nobody looked better yesterday in what they were wearing than Tiger Woods. Nobody. And maybe it's uh, bogey all day, bogey free 68. But if if anybody can rock the golf outfit, it's Tiger. So uh, He was wearing that awful green-brown color. What no, was Nike thinking was olive. That? It's fall, Carson. It's Masters in the fall. He's got the little olive-colored shirt on. It's the color Rory's wearing today. I told my wife last night, I said, I need that shirt. I need it. So I won't mm. be getting it, but I need it. Um, well, when he shows up, when he shows up in Sunday red at, at top of the leaderboard, that's when he'll look his best. Absolutely. Do you already have your red shirt, iron, steamed, pressed, and ready to go for Sunday? Because I do. I do too. I, I cannot wait. He, he played awesome. As you mentioned, his first bogey-free uh, opening round at, at Augusta, which is incredible. I mean, pretty much everyone wrote him off coming into this week. And uh, the most encouraging thing for me was it was pretty simple. Like he just he hit every center of every green. He made – he made putts. He didn't, he didn't three putt. He, it, it really could have been an even better round if he had dropped more putts. So I think uh, be interesting to see, he goes off super late today. So it'd be interesting to see how much he gets finished in, in his second round, but he was exceptional and he's got work to do. I think Dustin Johnson's up to eight under par. He had it up to 10. Now he's down to eight under. So he's got some, some work to do. Yeah. He had it to 10, made a couple of bogeys. Sung J M uh, has now gotten it to eight right alongside DJ Justin Thomas had it to eight, just made a double bogey at one, hit it in the trees left, tried to hit a punch shot out of the trees on the left and smoked a tree and went backwards. So looked just like an average Joe on that one. But we'll update you on the Oklahoma State guys. Ricky Fowler is at four under for the tournament, two under on the day. Matthew Wolf 
uh, still down there at even for the event, couple over on his day. And Charles Howell III has not yet teed off today. He shot a one under 71 in round one. So that that's the update on the Oklahoma State guys. Hopefully uh, one of them, Ricky being the lowest right now, hopefully Ricky can really get it going because, I mean, there are stretches on this golf course where you can make a lot of birdies in a hurry. So I think if Ricky could get it to six or seven by the end of his round, he'd be feeling really good headed into the weekend. The course is playing as easy as it ever will because oh, yeah. there were so many times yesterday and today that I've watched that they've hit parts of the green that in any other year, the ball is just not going to stop. And it's stopping this year because they got so much rain. It's so wet. And uh, I think that's, that's, I think that's something that bothered Tiger. He, he missed everything on the high side was putts because the, the putts were slower than normal. You know, he's made yeah, those putts millions of times and yeah, they were, the they were just not breaking. They got all that rain yesterday morning and they've got a sub air system at Augusta, which basically means they can do whatever they want with the moisture of those greens. So they can suck all the moisture out of them. But, but still, whenever you get that much rain, there's just nothing. You can't get them at their normal speed. They certainly seem to have a little more pace to them from what I've watched today. Yep. And I watched, again, you can click on masters and watch players entire rounds just shot for shot for shot. And I watched all of Matthew Wolf shots yesterday and he, he drove it better than obviously he has lately. But the most impressive thing about him yesterday was his short game. The best shot he hit all day was on 16. He hit it wide to the right from the tee box. He, he was dead over there. And in most years it, it would have been dead, but he hit this chip that checked up right at the top of the slope, came to a complete stop and then slowly, but surely kind of trickled down the slope and got up to next to the flag for an easy par. I mean, he, he showed tremendous touch with his short game that, that, that got him to four under and obviously he's struggling today. But again, I, I could not be more impressed with, with Matthew Wolf, who, who got off to a bit of a slow start to this season, but is, is playing really well. Who were your picks coming into the, the week, Colby? Like, give me a, who was like your top five in order coming into the week if you had to pick? Yeah, so I actually, interestingly enough, do a golf podcast. It's called The 73rd Hole, if anybody wants to check it out. And my one player to win, I, I, we both said – if we can just pick any one player to win, regardless of value or anything like that, mine was Dustin Johnson. That's the guy who I thought was going to win this week. Um, that's on record. I'm not just doing that. 27 holes in whenever he's tied for the lead. Uh, other than that, the guys that I liked in the top five, I liked Xander Schauffele a whole lot. Uh, I bet him. I liked Bubba, who actually went the other way yesterday. Shot two over 74 yesterday. Um, gosh, who else did I like? I actually was kind of on the fade Bryson train just because so many people were on him. Not for any other reason than that. I just – too many people were on Bryson, uh, so I wanted to fade him. Oh, the other guy I liked was Cantlay. I put some money on Cantlay as well. So those were kind of the four that I had at the top were DJ, Xander, Cantlay, and Bubba. And three of those four look pretty good right now. Well, and Bubba had it going. He just finished – he finished with a couple bogeys coming in or else yeah. he, he had it going pretty low as well. Uh, my top five in order was John Rahm. And he got off to a slow start yesterday, but really lit it up to uh, put himself in a good position. I got his hole ones earlier in the week, too. Not just the one that he skipped in on his birthday on Tuesday. He made a hole-in-one on four on Monday. Yep. I mean, he was my pick before all that, too. I was like, oh, great. Now everyone's going to pick him because they saw these right. holes in one, you know. So I had Rom, Xander, who people just don't understand how good he is. I think he has like four or five top fives already at Augusta. He's just such a good player. Uh, Justin Thomas, third. I put Bryson fourth just because I thought with his length, there was just no way he wasn't going to top five. And Matthew Wolf, I had fifth. So obviously he's got work to do. And I, I had some money on Rom and Wolf uh, to win. 
So uh, pretty good pick so far, but obviously some guys are starting to separate. As we are having this conversation, I said I liked Cantlay. He just hooked one into the trees on two. It hit the tree, kicked 30 yards right, caught the speed slot in the fairway. He's perfect. Living right. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. So you think DJ's going to win? Uh, I mean, DJ was my pick before the tournament, and he's tied for the lead 27 holes <laughs> in, so I've, I've got to go DJ. Yep. Uh, I think he looks pretty solid. So hopefully everybody enjoys the Masters. Colby Powell, we appreciate it. And uh, next time we will talk, it will officially be Bedlam week. I can't wait. It's my favorite time of the year. The game doesn't always make it my favorite time of the year, but leading up to it, I, I, I certainly love it. Yeah. Following Masters week with Bedlam week is about as good as it gets. I can't wait. I mean, Masters on a week that OU and OSU don't play could not be more perfect. So, Oh, I would be so mad if Bedlam was tomorrow. I don't need them both on the same week because I need each of them to be able to get 100% of my attention. <laughs> exactly. Colby Powell, go listen. To, what was your – get your golf podcast another plug. How can people listen to it? Yeah, the 73rd hole. Spotify, Google, Apple, wherever you find your podcast, the 73rd hole. Myself, Taylor Williams, host it. We do one or two episodes. Usually for the big tournaments, we'll do two episodes a week. Otherwise, we just do one. We do recaps, previews. We had Jim Woodward, who played on the PGA Tour. Woody. Yeah. Woody. Yeah, Woody joins us before every major to give his picks. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we've had we've had Taylor Gooch on, Taylor Moore, who's on the Corn Ferry Tour. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So check it out, the 73rd hole. Big time. Colby Powell, we appreciate it. Enjoy Augusta. Wear your Sunday red, and uh, we'll talk to you on Monday. Yes, sir. Have a good weekend.